Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Good talk, everybody. Feels like deja vu. It's I, like we just did this. Yeah, so weird. I, I, it's so similar. So just for everybody's awareness, I didn't click record when yeah, we started. We had about 10 minutes in. No, it wasn't that far. Uh, but yeah, guten talk. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists, and we're hoping you've figured that out by now. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Jump, 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 jump. for lunch. I bet you that's what you're going to say next. How did you know? Because we did this all. Wow. But but you're not incorrect. <laughs> I know I'm not incorrect. I, I very much did and I very much enjoyed it. So November 9th. Oh, oh my God, please. Come please, out please. to our live show in Vancouver if you can. It's at the Rio you Theater. You can. At 10 p.m. That's the corner of Commercial and Broadway. Yeah, right. Hey, very convenient for the SkyTrain. A main hub a right main hub. there. You just get off and you cross the street. That's it. And you're there. You will be entertained beyond belief. If you have a funeral to go to or somebody's birthday party, come to our thing instead. My God, 10, 10 p.m. funeral? Jeez. Yeah, know. you certainly want to bail on that. It's, I think it's a trap. <laughs> We're we essentially are saving your lives. Exactly. Come to the live show because... Um, Mike and I are, are not afraid to cry if there aren't enough people. You don't want to mustachioed 40 something year old fellas crying on stage. You don't want that. So this is episode 98. Holy crap. It is the legend of Bloody Jack Kravchenko. Okay. And I know you don't know about this guy. How dare you? Well, do you? I do not. (laughs) See? So here we are, we're in Manitoba. In particular, Plum Coulee, Manitoba. I've never heard of it. It's an unincorporated community in the municipality of Rhineland. Can we start one? It lies an hour's drive southwest of Winnipeg and less than 20 kilometers west of Altona. And that's the community we talked about in episode 86 where the school shooting yeah, happened. Yeah, 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 I recognize that. In 1902, yeah. yeah. But this one takes place in the early 1900s, so. Oh. But, as with many legends from long ago, some of the details have been lost to history. Mm-hmm. While yet others have been stretched, exaggerated, and molded to fit the narratives of numerous writers and historians. Classic historian. Yeah. There is no way we can come up with a definitive take on this case, because the people who actually knew what happened are dead. Yeah, there is no definitive take on it, so how can we? (laughs) Exactly. We know of more than one book, though, being written on this man's life and crimes, which might shed more light and untangle the mess that years tend to do to a story. Oh. So, when those come out, 
people will say, wow, you guys didn't know that. And we'll say, no, we didn't. So John Larry, a.k.a. Bloody Jack Kravchenko, was born in Romania in 1881. If you got bloody attached to your nickname. And you're Romanian. <laughs> you're either a dictator or a vampire. Yeah. His parents were from Ukraine. Okay. His father was an engineer and his mother was of Greek... Descent? Descent, yeah. yeah. Okay. His family emigrated to Canada in 1888, and that's the year Jack the Ripper was doing his thing in Victorian London. Hmm. Coincidence? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Kravchenko settled in the aforementioned town of Plum Cooley. That's a beautiful name. According to Halifax's Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21, quote, from 1867 to 1914, the Canadian West opened for mass settlement and became home to millions of immigrant settlers seeking a new life. Winnipeg grew from a city of 20,000 in 1886 to 150,000 in 1911. Yeah, probably my grandparents were a part of that. There you go. Yeah. So, it, yeah, because they came from Scotland. 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 Yeah. I went to the Pier 21 Museum with Carol, oh, my, wow. my birth mom, and my brother, Phil, a couple of years ago. How was that? Um, if you have any interest in Canadian immigration history at all, I it's do. worth a visit. I do, I do. Many Canadians had their ancestors enter the country here, including my maternal grandmother, a Dutch war bride with Jewish heritage escaping from Europe at the end of the war. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So... Your grandparents probably landed there too, because there wasn't a lot of planes in the 1800s. Uh, no, they came. They they actually met while coming to Canada. There you go. On on a ship. Yeah, they, they did. Romanians, Hungarians, and Ukrainians were driven from Europe by overpopulation and a lack of work. These folks, used to harsher climates, came to settle the prairies as it matched closely to what they were used to. Thanks to Canadian Liberal politician Sir Clifford Sifton, who was the Minister of the Interior under Sir Wilfrid Laurier, and encouraged the settling of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, these people became known as Sifton immigrants. Oh, interesting. Okay. Canada promised a fresh start for families like the Kravchenkos, so they came over with the waves of other settlers. Jack's father, Elia, was born in 1862, and he took up blacksmithing in Canada, and he worked at his own shop in Plum Coulee. Jack later learned this trade in his father's shop that was right next door to their home. Oh, convenient. Yeah. How's that for a commute? <laughs> yeah, well, my commute's better because it's just up the stairs. <laughs> Maybe they didn't have stairs, Mike. <laughs> True. Maybe theirs is better. Although Jack's mother died when he was just a boy, his father soon remarried, this time to a German woman named Catherine, who doted on young Jack. Although mother, that's M-U-T-H-E-R, the German mother, sure. was always supportive, she was also known to be reasonably strict with him. She expected him to be a good boy. Okay. She also had some odd beliefs, claiming there was real magic in the world and warlocks and witches really existed. It is a good thing they didn't move to, to uh, Salem. Salem. Yeah. That's <laughs> very different result. Might, might not have went well for no. her. Thanks to his multicultural heritage, Jack spoke Ukrainian and Russian fluently. Hmm. His stepmother taught him German, which he picked up easily, and of course, being in Canada, he was fluent in English as well. Other accounts claim he might have spoken Italian and Bulgarian also. He was no dummy by any stretch. I done gots the Englishes. I barely speak that. Yeah. From Edward Butts, the story of Bloody Jack in his book Running with Dillinger, quote, At school he was said to be a very bright student, but Jack didn't like school and rarely attended. Indeed, Jack Kravchenko had a serious problem with any sort of discipline or authority. He would not be told what to do. Added to this were a hair-trigger temper and a violent streak that made him a bad man to cross in any way. Ordinarily a friendly and easygoing young man, Kravchenko could suddenly explode in a fit of volcanic rage. Hmm, we've heard this a lot. Yep. Jack was not a tall man, just five foot six inches tall, but his personality, confidence, and charisma made him seem much larger. He was a pretty good-looking guy with piercing blue eyes, dark hair, and heavy eyebrows, a strong jaw, and a cleft chin. Well, wow. Jack started getting into trouble very young. 
On November 30, 1892, Winnipeg Daily Tribune reported that 11-year-old Kravchenko was charged with stealing five watches from J.S. Barron's store where he was working. Oh, you don't do that. Kravchenko claimed that someone had dropped them, and he was only keeping the watches until he could give them back to Mr. Barron's. That's so very, very kind of him. Yeah, isn't that nice? Yep, yep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be keeping your laptop uh, until you need it. Kravchenko was given a warning by the presiding judge. I mean, he was only 11 after all. <laughs> Lock him up. In the story about Bloody Jack on Manitoba's Historical Society's website, written by Martin Zelig, Jack's father, quote, always gambled and caroused around a lot. And Kravchenko's own natural mother in Greece had been a noted horse stealer who would go off guised as a man and would come back as a well-dressed woman leading a small string of horses. John even had an affair with his father's mistress, which caused Papa to, quote, shoot himself right through the foot. Well, damn. I don't know what that is all about. There, but, there, um, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> right? Wow. So mom's a horse thief, dad's, dad's a drunk, and John's playing pokey poke with his uh, soon-to-be stepmom. Yeah. Or a, maybe a mistress. I don't think it was a stepmom. I it's, think it was just a mistress. Sounds like she had a pretty good racket going with that horse thief in there. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> but she's dead anyway. His birth mom, right? Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, that was a pretty good racket. You yeah. Come as a man. Oh, I would like the horse, please. <laughs> and then <laughs> take a drive. I need to test drive this horse. Go poof, turn into yeah. a lady. and I guess you would have to test drive a horse, wouldn't you? I guess so. You got to know if it's like... Does it come with all the uh, features that you're looking power for? Power windows. This horse has got power windows. It's got Apple Car Vent- ventilated <laughs> Apple Car ventilated seats. There you go. Yeah. Jack apparently got into trouble when he was 15 and jailed for a few months after stealing a bicycle in Morden, Manitoba. Well, I guess he needed to get around. I don't Things get a little murky in some of the accounts I read about the next period of his life. There are claims that Jack ran off and became a professional wrestler and took part in bouts all across the U.S. as Australian Tommy Ryan or Pearl Smith. Sure. Some think he went as far as Australia to actually learn to wrestle. Still other reports have him traveling all over the country as a boxer. Two very different sports. Yes. Okay. From Martin Zellig's article on Manitoba's Historical Society's website, quote, certainly though he was only five foot six inches tall, He was extremely well-muscled for his 160 pounds. His handsome face, however, was completely unmarked and his ears and nose belied the legend of his professional wrestling career. As well, during his alleged athletic peregrinations, and I've never had to say that word before. Wow, I've never had to hear that word before. (laughs) Kravchenko is rumored to have married a relative of Gentleman Jim Corbett, the world heavyweight boxing champion from 1892 to 1897. Not a bad, that's a five-year run. That's pretty good for as a champion. Uh, But there seems to be no more mention of this particular wife. She Mm. either left, died, or never existed at all, save for in the mind of some biographer who decided to embellish the story and add to the legend of Bloody Jack. Mm. Thus missing information. People make stuff up. Well, stories need embellishing, Mike. Not all of them. I'm just try- Some I, of them are pretty I'm, darn interesting. I'm just trying to be a devil's advocate over okay, here. Okay, all right. Just trying to maybe support some of these creatives. No, they're lying bastards. Regardless of the veracity of those claims, Jack was back in Manitoba in 1902, touring as a temperance lecturer, speaking in both Canada and the U.S. Whoa. The Anti-Saloon League was on the rise, and Kravchenko saw an opportunity there. The group's motto was, the church in action against the saloon. So temperance is like anti-alcohol. Oh, okay. You beat me to it, I was going to ask. I know. But <laughs> Kravchenko was not <laughs> But Kravchenko was not exactly practicing the Christian values he was barking to the crowds about. I've never heard of that happening before. No. He was passing bad checks as he went and, quote, was finally caught in Regina and sentenced to 18 months in Prince Albert Penitentiary. How would you feel about having a penitentiary named after you? Prince Albert? Yeah. Like, just any, like, like Mike Brown in prison. How would you feel? Like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Yeah. Why would they name it after me? 
Just, is it because I did something good or something bad? This is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, if you're Prince Albert... It all depends. Would you be like, oh, sweet, penitentiary named after Mary? Would you be like, why me? What the fuck? But it was like, named after the place, Prince Albert. But the Prince Albert place must have been named after a yeah, Prince Albert. So, see where I'm going? But the prison, then, is coincidental. Look, just, just nod and agree. Okay. Just nod and agree. After his sentencing in Regina... Jack was transported by rail to Prince Albert over 300 kilometers north. As the train went, Jack seethed. He resented being locked up. Seeing an opportunity, Jack, in handcuffs, leapt out a window of the moving train and made a break for it. Uh-oh. What Kravchenko had not counted on was the level of pride in his job that the guard attending him felt. Oh, no. The prison guard, seeing his charge attempting to escape, also jumped from the train, <laughs> easily recapturing Jack after a brief chase. That's an emotional roller coaster Jack must have gone on. He's there. like, I'm getting away. <laughs> Whoa, freedom! Oh, shit. As sociopaths are known to, Kravchenko quickly convinced his handlers he was contrite for his escape attempt and no longer an escape risk. <laughs> How convenient. Internally, though, Jack was always plotting his next move. Another opportunity presented itself just months into his stint behind bars. The outside walls of the prison needed painting. Jack volunteered to lead a group comprised of he and three other cons to complete the task. Oh my god! You'll never guess what happened. Wait, did they make a run for it because already being outside the walls of the prison? Okay, who guessed? Once outside... <laughs> The lone guard, <laughs> oh, poor guy, charged with watching the paint crew, was distracted by one of the inmates as planned. Mm -hmm. Jack bonked the unsuspecting man over the noggin with a full bucket of paint, knocking him cold. All four men ran off as fast as their legs would carry them. If you got hit on the head with a can of paint, that would, like, do some damage. Oh, a full can of paint has some weight behind it. I'm just like, what genius was, like, oh, outside of the prison needs to be painted? Who should we get to do it? How about people captured and enclosed in said prison? Yeah. Well, somebody had to do it, and the, the guards aren't going to do that. Well, I don't so. know. Maybe, like, hire a painter? <laughs> there you go. I mean, like... It, what? They they escaped? How did that happen? Oh, I didn't see that. Especially because he has a history of it. Yeah, yeah. Jack's three accomplices were soon apprehended, but Jack Kravchenko had vanished. Uh-oh. He turned up back in Manitoba long enough to hold up a shipment of cash at gunpoint. Shit. He made away with $2,500, which adjusted for inflation comes out to almost $75,000 in today's cash. What If you just escaped from prison and came up with $75,000 currently, like you could, yeah, that's going to help, help you get away. You're doing okay. Oh, I'm moving to Tijuana. Well, he didn't go to Tijuana. Loot in hand, Jack Kravchenko disappeared across the mostly at that time unguarded border to the United States. Mm-hmm. From Detective Sergeant John Burchill's article on the Winnipeg Police Service's website in the History and Museum section, quote, Once in the United States, he worked his way to New York. He held up several banks in New York and then slipped onto a freighter bound for England. Mm. Once in Europe, he continued on his merry way and robbed banks in England, Germany, and Italy. He was reputed to have robbed a bank in Milan, where he locked the manager in a vault and then joined the crowd outside to watch the excitement. <laughs> From Italy, he moved to Russia and married there in 1905. And which is actually a very common thing, not moving to Russia and marrying in 1905, but the watching the pandemonium or uh, uh, yeah, uh, of a crime that arsonists love to do that. Yeah, yeah, they, they're out there famous for wanting to admire hmm. their burn. So Jack came back to Canada with his wife, Fanica, in 1906, and the pair put down roots near his family home in Plum Coulee. At some point, the couple had a son. It's unclear how Kravchenko went unrecognized I there. just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> but somehow he managed, but it wouldn't last long. <laughs> okay, good. Jack's itch to rob needed scratching. He got a thrill from making off with someone else's dough. He started scoping out another bank, this time... It was a more local bank he hit, the Bank of Hamilton near Winkler, Manitoba. I mean, or just go get a job at Tim Hortons. I mean, maybe do There was that. no such place at the time. Oh, wait a minute. 
I thought it came with Canada. No. Someone recognized Kravchenko during the heist, and he had to lamb it again across the border. More money in hand. He eluded police for another two years. My God. He was caught and arrested in Winnipeg in late 1908 and jailed while awaiting sentencing for the $2,500 cash shipment heist he'd pulled in 1906. While in jail, he became involved in another scenario. This time, it was murder. Oh, oh. A Scotsman named Eccles Lennox was found dead in a sleeping car in the CP rail yard in Winnipeg opposite Sutherland Avenue on the morning of November 17, 1906. Why did it have to be a Scotsman? Of all people! Lennox had been dead in there for hours when a railroad worker discovered his corpse. A 32 caliber bulldog-style revolver lay nearby. Mm. From the Winnipeg Tribune on November 23, 1908, Quote, when Eccles Lennox was found in the sleeping car, Shushwap, with two bullet holes in his head and another in his left breast, it was said by police in a coroner to be a case of suicide. Wow. Although how a man could fire into his own body even the second of three shots, either one of which must have been fatal, seemed a mystery. Uh, yeah. Like, how do you shoot yourself twice in the head? Yeah. And then uh, once in the chest? Y- you don't. Correct. You, plain and simple. Somebody else does that for you. Yeah. I mean, if, if you start with the head, right, you're you're not making it to the body. No. If you start in the body, you're you're probably in way too much pain and unable. Right. I mean, perhaps you just shot a hole through your spine. Of course, it wasn't suicide. No. Lennox had been on the way back home to Scotland to take the money he'd squirreled away while working in Canada. Oh, shit. He had a train ticket to Montreal and a ticket for a boat back to Scotland. He was also carrying some cash, but it was suspected a large amount of it might be missing. Mm -hmm. And that might be the motive for his murder. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. A witness came forward stating he'd seen a large man named Thomas Henry Hicks, a cleaner with the railroad, enter the sleeping car on the night Lennox died. Not only that, he'd enter the car after Hicks and heard the shots and then groaning of Lennox as he lay dying. Okay. Hicks, blood on his hand, most likely from rifling the dead man's pockets, had threatened the witness to keep the shooting a secret. But the witness's conscience got the better of him, and he had to tell the police a few days later. So that's a pretty solid witness. Pretty solid, you would think. You, you would think, yeah. Another man came forward stating that he was told by Hicks that he was carrying a revolver on the night of the murder, confirming the story of the first witness. I mean, so he's literally, literally has blood on his hands. Literally. And a revolver. Another three men were arrested along with Lennox, and now an empty leather purse that had belonged to the dead man was seized and entered into evidence. The eyewitness was taken into protective custody until the trial the next week. Things moved uh, quite a bit faster back then, justice-wise. I think they had a lot less going on. (laughs) Maybe. He was taken into protective custody because people were trying to kill him. Hmm. Understandably. Yeah. In jail, Kravchenko agreed to testify on behalf of Thomas Henry Hicks. Uh, That's right. Our guy was going to be the star witness on behalf of the defense. Hmm. Now, just bear with me. I'm bearing. From Detective Sergeant John Birchall's article on the Winnipeg Police Services website in the History and Museum section, quote... Kravchenko came forward and stated the gun was actually his. While the court could not prove that Kravchenko was the murderer, the charges against Hicks were dismissed since he could not be tied to the gun. No one else was ever charged for Lennox Eccles' murder. Thanks to the testimony of Jack Kravchenko, he walked free. What the hell? So who the hell is this Thomas Henry Hicks then? Nobody related. It's still unknown for sure whether Kravchenko was involved at all, that he was still out and about when the crime occurred. It was most likely just a get-out-of-jail scheme cooked up between two dirtbags in the slammer. Yeah. Kravchenko knew the cops couldn't prove he'd snuffed a Scott. He'd be the fall guy and throw a wrench in the case. He relished in sticking it to the cops every chance he could get. Kravchenko was returned to jail and subsequently convicted for robbing the Bank of Hamilton in 1906. 
for which he was sentenced to Stony Mountain Penitentiary for three years. Interesting guy, right? Yeah. So, yeah, he gets one murderer off. Yeah, sticking it to the cops. Yep. All right. We will take a break here and come back with more Bloody Jack's story. Bloody Jack. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. After being released from prison in 1911, Kravchenko decided it was best to leave the prairies and move his wife and son almost 650 kilometers east of Plum Coulee to the remote Graham, Ontario. Jack's early training as a blacksmith came in handy and he went to work as a boilermaker at the National Transcontinental Railway shops nearby. It's going to be a good trade to be in. Sure. At that time. The NTR was a historic railway that ran from Winnipeg to Moncton, New Brunswick. It was eventually gobbled up by the CNR. Mm -hmm. Jack didn't stay a square john for long. People at work started to irritate old Jack, especially the bosses telling him what to do all the time. Okay, well, that's what bosses do, Jack. (laughs) Although he maintained a cool exterior and was polite and personable most of the time, Jack was known to fly into a rage at the slightest provocation. He wasn't above punching someone out, even for a perceived slight. In 1913, even though he'd managed to work his way up to foreman in the shop, management at the NTR had had enough of old Jack. He was demoted for being violent. People were terrified of him. Just demoted? Like, you're punching people out? They're like, look, Mike. We're going to... We're going to demote you, but you can still be here. Yeah. Well, Jack didn't like that. You don't say. It was a slap in the face to him, so he and his family pulled up stakes and again moved back to Winnipeg. He he seems like such a calm, rational individual, though. I can't believe he was so upset. Jack fell right back in with the same old crowd of bad apples and spent a lot of time drinking, gambling, and planning his next moves at seedy establishments. A couple of them were called the Moose Club and the Pyramid Club, and they were open all night. Well, they both sound pretty great. The Moose Club. Yeah. From Detective Sergeant John Birchall's article on Bloody Jack, quote, After he returned to Winnipeg, because of his underworld connections, he was paid a small amount of money by Winnipeg's chief of police, Donald McPherson, to find out who was involved in a series of safe blowings. Kravchenko took the money and never reported back to Chief McPherson. (laughs) On November 2nd, 1913, Kravchenko was arrested on, quote, suspicion of being involved in a robbery at a resort in Kildonan. Although he was arrested with two loaded revolvers in his possession, he was released for lack of evidence. Kravchenko was later to state that he felt the only reason he was arrested was because of the trick he'd played on Chief McPherson. I'm beginning to have a lot of concern about um, officers of the law in the early 1900s. Yeah. Why? They're... Their decision-making? Their decision-making. I mean, hey, would you like to paint the outside of the prison? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Jack claimed in a newspaper story that the chief was out to get him and that he'd gone straight. But as there's more to this story, we know that this leopard had not changed his spots. No. When do they ever? Jack's father and stepmother were still in Plum Coulee and Jack would visit every chance he got. They lived on Main Street between the blacksmith shop and the Plum Coulee Jail. The family wouldn't have far to go if Jack was ever picked up for something. I'm sure the irony was not lost on him either. Yeah. He could make his own handcuffs. Yeah. He was also visiting his Mennonite pals there, and some of them were troublemakers. Mm. Troublemaking Mennonites, I guess. (laughs) Scofflaws. (laughs) Scofflaw. (laughs) That's one of my favorite words. (laughs) It was great. During these visits, Jack would pass by the Bank of Montreal branch in the little town and it would catch his eye every time. (laughs) Oh, because he would like to go seek employment there? 
Not sure if he ever entered the bank for any good reason, but you can imagine <laughs> you can imagine the cringy experience a bank teller would have faced with one of the most notorious <laughs> criminals in the province. Yeah, shit, eh? I'm here for my money. <laughs> I'd like to make a withdrawal. Oh my god! Oh my god! No, I mean I've my account. I like it. I really I would like some money. Jack started to formulate a plan to knock the bank over. Surprise! But as it was so close to home, he'd have to wear a disguise. By this time, everyone in the region knew who he was, especially bank employees. It didn't take him long to figure out that the bank's manager, Henry M. Arnold, was the only employee who stayed at the bank over lunch hours. All the other employees went elsewhere to eat. Arnold was a sitting duck, ripe for plucking. He just needed some firepower. Oh no, poor Henry. From Detective Sergeant John Birchall's article on Bloody Jack, on November 18, 1913, Kravchenko went into the Hinkston Smith Arms Company in Winnipeg, ordered six Winchester rifles, a 9mm Browning automatic, and a 7.65 Luger handgun. He told the clerk he was the owner of the Plum Cooley hardware store and that he wanted the rifles shipped to him along with an invoice, but he would take the two handguns with him. Sounds Seems like a, an excessive amount of weapons. Yeah, well... If you think about it, what was he really doing? He was just stealing two handguns. Yes, yeah, no, yeah. Even though you could get the rifles cheap, they ran for about like twelve fifty a piece at that time. <laughs> Again, like the trusting abilities of apparently everybody. You're not going to Google it and find out. It's 1908. Maybe you say like, Or 1913. Maybe you say like, do you have a deed? Can you show us the deed He'd to be the dragging store? his deed around with him? No, because if you're going to apply to try to air... If you're going to go and try to make this guy, you would think, can you show us some IDs? There's something... What it sounds like is people were much more trusting of others and look back what, in And look that, what happens. That time. They, they steal your guns. Yeah. And they paint the outside of the prison. <laughs> and then run away. And run away. Jack had initially planned to rob the bank with three of his Winnipeg cronies, but on the day that they meant to rob the bank, the manager left at lunch hour and locked up the bank after him. <laughs> unknowingly thwarting yeah. the plan. Uh. The others tapped out after the plan fell apart, and Jack was livid. He was embarrassed. Yeah, well, I mean, he was trying to show off. I got this great plan. Maybe his pride had got the better of him. He decided to go it alone. He didn't need those guys. Before he robbed the bank, though, Jack showed up at a local home that some of his pals hung out at and bragged about his plan to rob the bank. He even showed them a map of how he was going to do it. And Always a good idea, Mike. Yeah. Always a good idea. I highly recommend all criminals out there, just talk about the plan. Explain as much as what you're going to do yeah, yeah. to people who you don't really trust. Yeah, it's highly recommended. On December 3rd, 1913, at 12.30 p.m., Jack made his move. He'd threatened a local taxi driver and longtime associate into being the getaway driver for his heist at the Bank of Montreal. Oh my God. The man claimed Kravchenko told him he'd make it priority number one to hunt him down and kill him if he drove off while Jack was in the bank. Okay. With the taxi waiting for him nearby, Jack was wearing a long coat, a fake beard, and a handkerchief over his face as he entered the bank. He held up H.M. Arnold with the 9mm Browning, threatening his life if he didn't cooperate. Kravchenko had Arnold stuff $4,200, which adjusted for inflation would be almost grand. Damn. In today's cash, it was almost all the money that they had in the bank. Well, at least now he can buy his own guns. Right? Jack warned Arnold not to follow, turned, and ran out the bank. Mr. Arnold grabbed his own pistol from the desk. Oh, and ran after Jack. Oh my goodness. Uh, from Edward Butts, The Story of Bloody Jack, in his book Running with Dillinger, quote, Outside the bank's back door, about two feet from the building, Kravchenko had dropped some bundles of money and was half kneeling to scoop them up. Gun in hand, Arnold shouted at him to stop. Those were his last words on earth. Oh. The outlaw responded with a single shot. The bullet struck Arnold in the chest and went right through his body, severing his spinal cord. The manager was probably dead before he hit the ground. Oh, shit. Jack hopped into the waiting taxi and took off. Oh, poor Arnold. The murder was not discovered until the other employees came back from lunch. 
Poor Mr. Arnold was found lying dead in the ash pile in the alleyway behind the bank. Although no one saw the shooting directly, some school kids did see a man running and hopping into a car, which then sped off. Mm. Two of the children gave the same description and described a man who looked a lot like Jack Kravchenko, but could not positively identify the running man. The third kid, named Mary Dorskin, knew Kravchenko and told investigators it was definitely him that she'd seen fleeing. Well, I mean, you know, this place was blocks from his home. Yeah, and small. <laughs> it's very tiny yeah, little town. Yeah. Jack, in the meantime, had been dropped a few miles north of town by his terrified taxi driver friend. He threatened him again not to tell police about what had happened. Jack made his way back to Winnipeg after that. Police quickly learned who the taxi driver was, and it was a man named William Dick, after he too was identified by a witness. <laughs> in fear of his life, the first story he told the cops was that it was two men that he dropped off outside of town. Hmm. One was short in his late 20s, the other heavier, older and taller. He was asked straight up whether the shorter man was Kravchenko, but he lied again, saying only that it could have been him. Hmm. So yeah, he was legit terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I would have been too, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah. I'm, absolutely. I, I am now. Yeah. Don't drive Uber. <laughs> the papers the next day shouted out about the murdered bank manager and dangerous fugitive now on the run, Jack Kravchenko. Mm -hmm. Authorities quickly printed up a wanted poster with a photograph of Kravchenko offering a $1,000 reward for his capture. It's a good chunk back then. Yep. From Martin Zellig's article on Manitoba's Historical Society's website, quote, In the meantime, Kravchenko had managed to sneak back into Winnipeg, arriving in the early hours of the following morning. He rented a room in a boarding house at 546 William Avenue, where he posed as Dr. Fairchild, a visiting surgeon, later posing as a schoolteacher from St. John's College named Andrews, Kravchenko moved into a room at 439 College Avenue in Winnipeg's North End. During the next few days, a brazen Kravchenko had some associates hide part of the stolen loot and arranged to send $700 to his wife. He concocted wild plans to escape from the city dressed as a woman and even had one of his pals buy him a complete woman's wardrobe. He dropped in at the Moose Club and was frequently seen in his old haunts on Main Street, end quote. Guy is really brazen. Right? Like, he really, he's either uh, doesn't give a shit if he's caught, or he just feels so confident that I'm better than them all. I would um, think it was probably the latter. The latter, yeah. yeah. They won't catch me. They're stupid. <laughs> yep. It was his cronies who eventually turned him in. One of the rats was another taxi driver named Benjamin Rolfe. Hmm. who Jack had given $740 to keep quiet after dropping him off. Hmm. As the heat was really on to find Kravchenko, Rolf turned the cash over to police and told him that Jack was at the College Avenue boarding house. Rolf would later write a 52-page book about Kravchenko. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I guess you got to cash in yeah. if you can. Yeah, I, I'd write a book about him. On December 10th, Early in the morning, 20 rifle-wielding Winnipeg cops surrounded the home. Five others, including the chief of police himself, entered the home, passed the terrified landlady, Mrs. Byrne, and knocked on Jack Kravchenko's door. They were armed to the teeth and ready for a gunfight, but a bleary-eyed Kravchenko answered the door and found himself facing the barrels of five guns. <laughs> he smirked, saying, It's all up, I guess. I'll come quietly. Jack was cuffed and taken off to jail as the rest of the cops turned the house over looking for his loot. Quote, a total of $1,550 in Bank of Montreal notes were recovered. $810 was found hidden beneath the fence near the front door of the house. <laughs> the police even took the $5 that Kravchenko had paid to Mrs. Byrne, but she was just glad to have the fugitive out of her house. Yeah, I bet. If you add the $740 turned over by Rolf... This left $1,100 outstanding. There were also rumors of much more gold and jewels that Kravchenko claimed he'd kept hidden in a massive stash somewhere in the province, stuff that he'd brought back with him from Europe. You know, I, I, I'm skeptical of that because as we can see from the things we know, he keeps things in close proximity. He doesn't think. 
that um, he's going to get caught or yep. or he just doesn't give a shit. And so uh, I don't think he seems like the kind of guy who'd be smart enough to go hide things uh, in other locations. Even though he's in jail, the story doesn't end here, though. What? Facing the hangman for sure, Jack used his hidden cache of riches as leverage to convince his defense lawyer, Percy Hagel, and another man, a friend of Kravchenko's, to help him escape. So, was, oh, wow. Once he was out, he'd be smuggled out of the city, perhaps in a coffin, and get the payoff cash to his accomplices once he was free and clear. Okay, I'm thinking I'm thinking that's what he's telling them, but it's not really there. That is what he is telling them. Okay, phew, all right. Well, we don't know if it was. His preliminary trial was finished on January 9th, 1914, and Kravchenko was set to go on trial for his life in March. Mm. With the help of one of the guards, also promised a tidy sum for assisting, a rope and a 32 caliber pistol had been smuggled into the jail and given to Jack, and he'd hidden them in his cell under the mattress. Jesus. On the morning of January 10th, the guards on duty to watch Jack were his accomplice and another man. At the agreed time, Jack pulled out the thirty-two and pointed it at the two guards. He said, I'm going to leave here, boys, and I'll kill anyone who tries to stop me. Go into the closet and don't come out or try to call for help for ten minutes. Jack ordered the accomplice to slide his keys to him across the floor. Jack let himself out of his cell and used the keys to lock both guards in the closet. Mm. Kravchenko used the keys to let himself into another room with no bars on the window and threw the clothesline that he would use as a rope, out to climb down. Son of a bitch. Things did not go as planned. <laughs> the rope was, quote, so thin that it broke and he fell 30 feet to the pavement and sprained both knees and ankle and his back, end quote. Sorry, not sorry. Ow. The guard accomplice caved during an investigation into the escape and gave up everyone involved. <laughs> After a few false leads, eight days later... A badly injured Jack was finally picked up at his hideout in suite number four of 686 Toronto Street in Winnipeg. Always staying close. From a post on westenddumplings.blogspot.com. Interesting name. Quote, the Tribune reports a typically Canadian arrest scenario. McPherson said to the unarmed fugitive, this is the chief of police, mm -hmm. play fair Jack and we'll play fair with you. Kravchenko is said to have replied, I'm all in. I don't want any shooting, boys. The two then shook hands and McPherson placed him under arrest. <laughs> the police then had to help the injured man into the police car and whisked him off to Headingley Jail's highest security cell. End quote. What a pleasant arrest. <laughs> right? <laughs> Shaking hands and all. Oh, you got me. Mm. Suckers. <laughs> there were four men who'd helped Jack escape and all were identified. One of the men rolled over on the others and was relocated to Maryland, escaping prosecution. The officer involved, named Reed, got the longest sentence, seven years at Stony Mountain Penitentiary. He got sick and died there. Yikes. Percy Hagel, Jack's lawyer, got three years, but he went back to practicing law after he'd done his bit. <laughs> the, the fourth man got two years. Different times, Mikey. Right? I'm going to go back and be a lawyer. I've... I'm a better lawyer now because I understand crime better. <laughs> I've, I've committed some really bad crimes. I, I helped a murderer escape. I understand you more now. <laughs> Jack finally went on trial for bank manager H.M. Arnold's murder in March of 1914 in Morden, Manitoba. Jack, true to character, wanted to testify from the prisoner's box and not be sworn in. He didn't want to perjure himself after swearing on the Bible. <laughs> what he wanted to say was that he was not the man who'd shot Mr. Arnold. He'd had a gas gun, like a pellet gun, and that it was some unnamed accomplice who'd shot Mr. Arnold pulling the trigger at the exact same moment as Jack. From a grassy knoll. Exactly. Yeah. The testimony uh, without being sworn was disallowed, making this a landmark case in the history of the new Canada Evidence Act. Hmm. So cases referenced time and time again. Fascinating. Yeah. Everyone in court knew Bloody Jack was lying to save his own skin, especially as they'd already heard from Jack's taxi driver on the day 
who had told them Jack was the only man who'd gone into and come out of the bank. There had been no second man. Well, it's not looking good, Jack. No. From Detective Sergeant John Birchall's article on Bloody Jack, quote, The trial started on Wednesday, March 18, 1914, and was completed on April 9, 1914, with the jury finding him guilty of murder. Kravchenko was sentenced to hang on Thursday, July 9, 1914, at 7 a.m. God, if you sucks to be hung, let yeah. alone at seven a.m. Like at least, at least let them sleep in their final day. Can't sleep in. Like Jesus. The Winnipeg Tribune reported that Jack picked the lock of his cell with a teaspoon just to prove he could on the night before his hanging, and this was while the local chaplain was there praying, praying with him. My God. Jack had expressed tearful remorse for the murder of the innocent banker and then went to the gallows calm and fearless. He was ready to meet his maker as 2,000 onlookers waited outside the jail to see the black flag make its way up the prison's flagpole, this indicating the end of Bloody Jack. Hmm. That came at around 7.11 a.m. when the doctor pronounced Kravchenko dead after his body stopped jerking after he'd been hung at the prescribed time. So I wonder if that's where the... 7-Eleven came up with the name of their stores. I doubt it. Damn. There's an odd footnote to Kravchenko's story from Martin Zellig's article on the Manitoba Historical Society website. Quote, Kravchenko's stepmother, writes Edith Patterson, quote, obtained the body as soon as she could and tried to revive him. She had assembled everyone who she thought might be able to bring him back to life. Two witches, a warlock, a soothsayer, and even a practitioner of voodoo. The distraught old woman tried to breathe her own breath into the limp body, alas, without success. Kravchenko was buried in an unmarked grave in lot 546, section 22 of Winnipeg's Brookside Cemetery. Yeah, I highly doubt that to be true, but please, Jesus, I hope that's true. Isn't that weird? Yeah, yeah, it, it seems like one of those things that would absolutely be embellished. Be cooked up? Yeah, I mean, maybe she had somebody and she tried to revive, but then as time goes by, it's like, and, and a witch doctor. And, <laughs> and, a, and a monkey <clears throat> with a bone. And she even had the Pope there. <laughs> yeah, and the Queen of England showed up just for good measure. <laughs> huh. A fund for Jack's widow and son was set up by the church to help the woman, now destitute. There were several donations, but as the Tribune reported, the day after Jack's execution, there were none greater than five dollars. Mm. It grew a bit later, but it was not reported how much. Yeah, which sucks. I mean, she didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. You it, know, it, and she's victim by it all as well. Exactly. And that's it for this week's story, The Legend of Bloody Jack Kravchenko. Well, that was a fascinating tale, man. Isn't that a weird one? That was a very weird one. I quite enjoyed myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I'm going to say not where I thought it would go, but it's pretty much right where you th I thought it would go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like it just, it's, it was a windy road. But we did get there. We got there, and it was Jack's windy road. He just followed it. So first thing I think we should do is announce the winners of the mm, live show giveaway. The, the live show giveaway. <gasps> yes. I want to know. Okay, let's do it. Yes. Oh, my goodness. All right. Is it, is it time? There are three of you who have won a single pair of tickets to our live show at the Rio Theater at 10 p.m. on November 9th. 2019. That's right, our very first live show, and to help us celebrate our 100th episode. And the winners are Cat Hurd, Ayla Pena, and Christopher Golden. Not Christopher Golden! What? He's actually someone we know, which is kind of funny. Which is really crazy. Yeah. But that, that's, that's Scott actually... watched me do it randomly like it was a complete random draw. Yeah, absolutely. So. Absolutely. But then I saw it. That'll be really wicked to have Chris there. So congratulations, folks. Yes. And we will see you and a guest. All three of you. <laughs> and, and guests. And guests. This is going to be a blast. At the Podcast Festival live show at 10 o'clock on November 9th, 2019. 
at the Rio Theater downtown Vancouver. So, right. I, so I can at least say I know at, there's a guaranteed 10 people. Oh, aside, guaranteed. Aside from us. Guaranteed yep. 10 people. Yep. Oh, uh, there are other people I know who are coming. Then. Okay, well, great. So we're like, guaranteed probably 20. 20 at least. 20. <laughs> 20 people. In a, like a 500 seat. Yeah. So... Uh, so you better come out, Vancouver. If you don't, we're not yeah. going to be doing this again. Yeah. We're not going to embarrass ourselves over and over again. <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah. Just like we want to be I able to do these things. People say, why don't you have a live show? And then it's like, well. Crickets. <laughs> crickets because nobody showed up. Tumbleweeds. Yeah. 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 But just, people, will, people will show up. I, I'm I'm very confident. We, yeah, we, it doesn't need to be sold out. But we, like, if, yeah, we can, if we can see, like, solid representation... We'd really be tickled. Of human beings. <laughs> well, no, send, send cows. I don't care. No, we don't want cows. Hey, kitties. if they paid for their ticket, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, boy. So there we go. We're super stoked for you. Yeah, yes, we're we, looking we forward We hope to you are, too. All right. I guess it's time for Patreon shout-outs now. That, yeah, that's what we it's do. Like amazing. Right. Yeah. Amazing that people are still... Still coming, new <laughs> new folks every yeah. week. Yeah, expecting one day just zero. But, Ash, yeah, well, but so far, just you, you all keep coming, and we love you. We appreciate it. So first up is Ashley Winder or Winder from Madisonville, Tennessee. Oh, sweet! Thank you so much, Ashley. Yeah, thanks, Ashley. Tennessee, Tennessee. Yeah. yeah, I was in Nashville, so I can say I have been to your state. Oh, you've been. You went to Nashville. Yeah, for the crime. Oh, that's right. Two years ago. Yeah, two oh, years ago. Yes. Crazy. Right. Yeah. Looks fun. And Milo, Moset. Oh boy. And Milo Moset. Mm-hmm. I don't know where Milo is from. You don't. And yeah, why don't I don't know if Milo is male or female. You never know these things, Mike. It's just like, how how is it that I know everybody? How, how is it that I know everybody, Mike? I am, I don't know. Okay, well, let me give you the lowdown on Milo. Okay. So Milo lives in Europe. Do you want to try to, do you want to take a guess maybe where in Europe, Mikey? France. How did you know? That was a great guess. Well, yep, the my- last name Mosset gave it away. Oh, I see. You did some detective work. Yes, Milo uh, lives in France. And uh, what Milo does for a career mm-hmm. is he's now this. You, know, you wouldn't think of this to be a, a solid career in France. Maybe in, in Cheese Canada. maker? No. Oh. No, no. She, she makes curling rocks. I didn't know there were French curlers. Well, this is. Well, there are. Watch the Olympics one day, Mike. There, there are. Don't you mansplain me? No, I just <laughs> I Scotsplain you. Uh, and but you wouldn't think you would think that like Canada, where curling is huge, would be like where this be the hub of of rock manufacturing. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's actually France. And the other great thing about it is, um, they also make the the brooms. There? Yes. Yeah, they also make the brooms, but those are two two different departments. She, uh. Milo just makes the, the 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 rocks. So keep on rocking, as they like to say in, in, in the, the new in, in, in no no you went too far. No. Uh, this what they like to say in the curling rock industry. Keep on rocking. Well, there you it's go. Good, it's good, hilarious, fantastic. Yeah. Um, Nelson Baptista looks like he is uh, back with us as a patron. Oh, thank that, you, Nelson. Nelson, thank you. Uh, achingly polite. <laughs> is a podcast that's done by Clementine Yost. Okay. She emailed me yeah. to let me know something that was very interesting to us about our one of our last episodes. Oh. oh I'm, I'm, the Broken Arrow episode. Yeah. Her father was the screenwriter of the movie Broken Arrow. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Really? So, yeah, Clementine is uh, based out of Palisades, California right now, so... Thank you so much. Achingly Polite um, is her podcast, and uh, it's a podcast about feminism, mental health, and sex. Oh, I want to. Oh, this sounds important. She also creates feminist art that pushes the boundaries of our sexist society. Join me for a wild ride of feminist rants, mental health musings, 
and sex-positive education. So Achingly Polite is the name of the podcast? Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check that out because those are topics that I'm quite fascinated in and passionate about. So. so thank you so much, Clementine. Yeah. We really appreciate that. Very much so. Yeah, thank you, Clementine. Uh, next up, we have Regina Wally or Regina Whaley. I'm going to go with Wally. Okay. From Shoreview, Minnesota. Wow. Uh, do you actually have shore views in Minnesota? Yeah, not much. Not, not. Yeah, maybe Lakeview. I guess that's a shore. It qualifies. Thanks, Regina. We have somebody from Newfoundland. Oh, this we week. do. Yeah. Okay. I love Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Newfoundlanders are some of the finest people on the planet. This let's is just what say. I hear. This is what I hear. Oh, they're very, very kind. Uh, watch any documentary about uh, what they did for the folks on nine eleven. Yeah. 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 And this is Erica Green, and she's from Stephenville, Newfoundland. That sounds lovely. So thank you so much, Erica. Thanks, Erica. Muchos gracias, or as they say in Newfoundland, thanks, boy. (laughs) That's exactly what they say. Yep. Uh, Lord Tundren. Stephanie DeRoche upped her pledge. Oh. Uh, Yeah. She's she's at the... uh, at, at a new level there, so, so excellent. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much. She's in from Quebecois. Montreal, eh? Yeah. yeah, she probably liked the uh, uh, Jean Chrétien and uh, he, like Guy Lafleur, yeah. he's smoking in the penalty box. And, and the pepper, I put it on my plate. And then your poutine. Yeah. Eat your poutine, Scott, yeah. eh? Okay. And uh, looks like Kelly Moorhead has also upped her pledge. Wow. That's fantastic. And wow. she's from Prince George. PG you in know, the house. I don't know why, but I really do want to go to Prince George one day. I have been there. Yeah? I went to Prince George and uh, turned left and drove to my friend Art's house in, in Daco, which was is it, in the middle of BC. Was it, was it the Prince Georgiest? It, yeah. Oh, cool. It smells like a... Uh, um, Sulfur? Not sulfur, but it it does smell like a like a a, a logging town. Oh, I love I love the smell. Yeah. I love the smell of logging. I love the smell of logging well, my in the dad, morning. My dad worked in the lumber industry forever, and so uh, yeah, like I've, I've always loved the smell of, of uh, wood. Next up, we have Sarah W. Yeah, I don't know what her last name would be. W. It's just W? That's it. Why does it have to be more? It could be. Don't tell her how to live her her name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So she is from um, Fukushima. Fukushima, Japan? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was... She Guess what she did there? Worked in the nuclear plant? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's too bad. It. You nailed it. That's too bad. But clearly she She has like seven arms now? Four. Oh, yeah, four. four. Okay. She doesn't like to be. Yeah, that's We're not making fun topic. of people who have gotten poisoned yeah. by because uh, it's a sense of her vessels. Her, her extra arms are something that she she yeah she's a bit sensitive about, and understandably so. But yeah, she was one of the surviving employees. She was working that day. Mm. The wave knocked her over. Fantastic. Y- yeah. Well, no, I wouldn't say it's fantastic, Mike. But she, she after Fukushima, uh, the explosion, she moved. There you go. Just a couple blocks away, but still, she's still in the danger area. But, but yeah, so that's, uh, you know, she's a very strong individual, having survived and been through what she's been through and flourishing with extra arms. Excellent. Yeah. So we have uh, a doctor. We don't the hell. Shay Armstrong. Wow. From Dundurn, Saskatchewan. Wow. And Shay sent me an email. Okay. Saying, uh, greetings from Saskatchewan, the province that's easy to draw but hard to spell. <laughs> oh, coming with the jokes, are you? And the capital that rhymes with fun. Capital of Saskatchewan is Regina. That's not a rhyme. Oh, wait a minute here. <laughs> oh. First off, I want to say you rec- I recently became a pa- patron. Definitely worth the money for the podcast that you put out. I have to say your podcast isn't horrible. Well, that's just high praise. It isn't horrible. It isn't horrible. It isn't horrible. I'll take anything but horrible. 
And Shay's wondering why patrons don't get ad-free episodes. Well, you did. You, you do. You'll get a whole other episode. You, you get the after show. Yeah, without ads. There's no ads in that. Yeah, without yeah. without ads. But yeah, we don't do the ad-free episode, but uh, yeah, we just don't. Yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah. We need money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and okay I have a special recording of my Aunt Esther and my Uncle Frank that I've recorded at family meals when I need to fill that void of two people who care about each other bickering <laughs> but regardless definitely worth the five dollars <laughs> <laughs> also what is up with the, at the horn at every the beginning of every episode is that supposed to sound like a hockey game or an end of period because it does well, no that's no. The, that is the uh, o Canada Heritage Horns here in Vancouver that play at every noon Yep, uh, at lunchtime tells everybody downtown when it's time to go for lunch. Yeah, and we worked downtown for damn near a decade or more. Yeah. And so it, when you, when we were working at a time, yeah, you, you hear it all throughout the city. So, yeah, it's it, that's what it is. It's Because that was right next to where we worked they would go off to. Anyway, keep up the good work. Also gave a four-star review because, well, the Oilers are better. Please up and... <laughs> Please up it to five stars because it does actually make a difference. Don't forget to be awesome. Yes, my uncle is Neil, Dr. Shea Armstrong. So uh-huh. thank you very much, Shay. That's awesome. Thank you. Muchos gracias. That is awesome. Yeah, and a doctor. A doctor. Wow. And last up for our Patreon shoutouts anyway, we have Axana Klepsch. Wow, what a name. Axana Klepsch. Yeah, yeah. Well... Clearly German, and clearly, because I know for I fact. I didn't think that was German. Well, it, no, I know for I fact. I think that's be, more Eastern European. No, no, because she is the heiress to the Klipsch uh, speaker manufacturer. Okay. Electronics manufacturer. We make great products, and so she's the heiress to that, probably plotting on murder in the family so she can take over. Well, good for you, Oksana. You know, but yeah, so that's that's uh, who she is, and um, I love your speakers. They, if, if you they feel, are good speakers. No, they make great speakers if you feel inclined to, like, you know, send us some amps and speakers and headphones and maybe one of all of your products to each of us. Uh, you know, that'd be fantastic because we love your we love your, your family's product. Now, I did make some boo-boos. Uh, classic, Mike. Yeah, and that is because I missed some people who e-transferred us some money. Oh. So what'll happen is I'll get an e-transfer, it'll send me an email, but sometimes the email ends up in the spam folder for some reason, I don't know why. But anyway, Bonnie Gibson, a friend of ours, got got in touch with us, and she said, I didn't get a shout-out for my road trip money that I sent you over PayPal was because I didn't call it donut money. I was like, no. So thank you, Bonnie. Well, thanks, Bonnie. Someone else named Kelly sent us some donut money with a message. Happy birthday to you. Oh. Happy birthday to our show, which is actually tonight, the night that we're yeah, recording. Yeah, the night we're recording. Two uh, years. Thanks for the hours of delicious stories and conversation. Oh, well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, Lisa Blesky said, uh, she sent some money, and she said, you have created a great podcast and an amazing community Thanks for all you both do. Uh, it's more about you guys. The community is, is uh, we're just very fortunate to have just amazing, amazing listeners and supporters. And finally, Tracy Don DuPont said, collateral damage was awesome. You two are a great team. Oh, thank yeah. you. So we really appreciate that. Really thank you so much. Yeah. We, we got one person who sent us some donut money this week, and it is Marcin Banach. Oh, what a name. Yeah. Or Marcin Banach. I don't know. Marcin. 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 Great. One way or another, it's fantastic. One way or another, you made us say your name. Oh, yeah, multiple times. Well, probably only one of those was correct. But it looks like Martin. Oh, maybe it is Martin. This is just a, a, whoever you are. So Thank Martin you. Marchin or Banach or Banach or uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. M-E? We're, we're not making fun of your name. It's just because I'm so dumb I can't pronounce it. That's the problem. Well, it's not so much that as we're dumb. Gotcha. Banach. Achingly polite. Yeah. Don't forget that podcast. Yeah, yeah I, I can't. 
Thanks so much to our patrons past and present for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support us, you can do so at dark at you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow, like, whatever you do on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. And most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. What he said. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple and come to the live show. Please, please, please. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.